Hello to you, dear listener. I'm still in Fiji having quality time with my son and grandchildren. Fiji is fabulous, but Wi-Fi is moody where I'm staying. We've had no internet at all for a couple of days and I need to search for a hotspot, stand on one leg with my hand in the air to send this to Tiago in LA. Every second counts, so I'll be brief. Listen to this chat with Dr. Terry Marks Tarlow if you know what's good for you. She's super smart and supremely talented. We simply must applaud them, the chat podcast with Claire Borden, Kiko and Chad Bond. Dr. Terry Marks Tarlow, thank you so much for chatting with me today. It's my pleasure. You are a woman of many talents. You are a psychotherapist, you are an author, you are an illustrator, and you've just had the most exciting experience, which is you were invited to be the librettist, to take over, to fill the shoes, if you will, of a great poet, one Dylan Thomas, alcoholic of this parish. I don't care how good a clinical psychologist, booker or um, (laughs) illustrator you are, our author, that's a big leap to be a librettist. Tell me how that happened, please. Yes, that is a big leap. The first time that I wrote a libretto was in 2009. And it's because I love fractal geometry. I love fractals. And I, I have no idea what that is. Well, it's it's a new form of, it's a new branch of mathematics that just came into being in the 1970s. And it's the mathematics of nature how nature does complexity and makes pattern and shape. And I applied it to clinical uh, psychology. And the composer at Juilliard, who... um, Jonathan Daw. Jonathan Daw puts fractals in his music. He loves fractals too. And he read the book that I had written, Psyche's Veil. And he was um, working on... Um, what came to be called Cracked Orlando, which was a version of Orlando Furioso by Vivaldi. He was doing a contemporary version because his interest is in adapting opera for the next generation. Because it is a bit elitist, isn't it? Opera. Opera, right. Especially (laughs) Wagnerian, several hours long, right. So it's not an art form that has really... Uh, taken with young people and his idea was to to do a mini opera and to make it very contemporary so he wanted to put fractals in the words but he was stumped he wasn't sure how to do it and he contacted me and asked me to do it because he'd read your book he'd read my book it's a serendipitous thing I like that yes it was serendipitous Um, and I, when he first contacted me, was thrilled, and I had no idea how to do it. No. None. It's an it's a serious art form. It was, and right. specialized. Well, the part I really, not only did I not know how to write a libretto, period, but I, I had no idea how to put fractals in the words, and I figured that um, I may as well try, because if I failed, nobody in my field would know. And so I gave it a go. And actually, once I um, started to think about it, I figured out a very elegant way of of doing it. Because it's it's got to be a good story. So there's a beginning, a middle and an end, presumably. 
What he did is um, he had, from the original opera of Vivaldi, he had in Italian a plot line, a very thin plot line that went all the way through um, the piece in Italian. And he wanted me to plant English words in it that grew over the course of the opera. So it's the only opera that is in two languages that's been done. And what I did is um, by using the Fibonacci series, which is a very simple mathematical series. <laughs> Made easy for you to say. <laughs> no, really it is. You just add the two previous numbers together. So it's one, one, two, three, five, eight, etc. You're just adding. Yeah. And why that's a fractal is because the part-whole relationships stay the same. So the re the relationship between the part and the whole stays the same throughout the series, which... Has it got a good tune? <laughs> the, the opera? opera yeah. I think, I think so. That was the first opera. Okay. Yeah. So we did that in 2010. It opened. And you worked well together. Worked beautifully to together, <laughs> with the ballet in New York City. I when I went, the hair stood on my um, arms because I hadn't heard any any of the music prior to going, and it was contemporary dance and absolutely thrilling. At that time, in 2010, he mentioned this project. He mentioned that there was an opera, it didn't have a name at that point, that Stravinsky and Dylan Thomas were going to write, where the premise was, it's the end of the world, and two beings or earthlings are left who reinvent language, and then language brings the world back into being. And. Uh, uh, Dylan Thomas came to the United States to work on it. He got as far as New York City and then drank himself to death. So it got no further than this premise. And I heard about it and came back here, started to work on it by reading about Dylan Thomas, reading his poetry, reading his, um, his family's accounts of him. And I completely short-circuited. I just short-circuited is the best word, because as a person, he was really a horrible person. Mm. He was a raging alcoholic. He, he neglected his children. He was a womanizer. Um, and so the thought of channeling him completely was... Would you have liked him as a patient, as a client? Well, you've, you've anticipated my solution. Um, I wouldn't have because he was too much of a of an alcoholic, and I don't work with it. I don't like to work with addiction cases. They're very difficult when if somebody's in the in the throes of an addiction. Um, I mean, as alcoholic as he was, I think he was passing out all the time and this sort of thing. He, I wouldn't have been able to get through. But sure, I would have loved to just mm. because of who he was. I don't think I could have done much with him other than. Been a been a, a you know fly in the wall and it would have been incredible. Okay, so to, he was a hopeless case then. He was a hopeless case. However, 
Um, a brilliant, hopeless case. A brilliant. So that was the other piece of it. I was I read his poetry and I didn't understand it. And so I was I was uh, at in two thousand and ten, sort of on all counts, didn't think I could do it. I could do this thing, but I believe and I and creativity is one of my specialties clinically, as a psychologist. I believe that the project was seeding for. Ten, for almost 10 years, so that um, last year when Orlando, Cracked Orlando, opened up again, this time at Lincoln Center last April, but in a, in a small venue as the most complicated um, performance that Juilliard has ever put on because it was, the witch was holographically projected and there were seven screens and all sorts of action with the dancers and scenery, etc., were, were was flying from screen to screen. Um, and someone from a big wig from Juilliard invited Jonathan Daw to do another opera. And at that point, he this was a year ago. He uh, suggested we do this project. Just a year ago. Just so year you ago. turned it around quickly. Yes. Once I get going on these things, the first one I did in two and a half weeks, and this one I did uh, in probably two months. And um, at the point he suggested we actually do it, I realized that I didn't have to channel him. I could be his therapist because the whole story was bringing, is about bringing the world back into being. So I could be the therapist for the world, the therapist for Dylan Thomas, and all of a sudden, and then I realized it didn't have to be a story about the outer world coming into being. It could be a story about the inner world coming into being. And at that point, it turned into a creation myth. And then I was on solid ground because I've written a lot about creation myths in, in so the is past. So um, a libretto written as a play with mm -hmm. dialogue and for characters to say? Yes, I actually, so this is a very short piece. It's 35 minutes long. It's seven scenes. And I... Sounds perfect to me for opera. It, right. <laughs> I stay, whereas the first one was, I think, about 55 minutes, mm -hmm. which also yeah. was a good length. I did do the staging when I wrote it out. Um, so I, and that's the other challenging thing about this one is that there was no story yet. There were no mm. characters. So I had to really create the whole, the whole thing in a much closer collaboration than the first time when I was given a very clear structure. So you, story and is, there, is it all song? Is it all, or is there some dialogue? It's all song. Yeah. So you write all the words to these. Songs. I wrote all the words. Amazing. And then he wrote the music. Oh, that's interesting. So I wrote the, yes, and that happened the first time as well. That's I, unusual, isn't it? I don't know. Okay, let's just ask. <laughs> I don't know. Because so I, you invited I don't even know it. any new librettists, actually. You did actually. it. You delivered it. And then you go to the Lincoln Center in New York. In New York for... at the big Alice Tully Hall, which suits 900, seats 900 people. Packed. Yes. You know, if I'm going to be really honest, there, there were many challenging things about this trip um, and about this performance. One of which was that, so there were the two singers, there there was the man and the woman who were Juilliard, this was all done by the Juilliard Ensemble. Um, there was no staging at all. So the singers were standing on the stage looking out to the audience and not acting when they did it. And the really big problem there was that although the playbill was supposed to include the libretto, it was left out inadvertently. 
So the audience didn't have the words. And what language was it in? The... It was in English. Okay. But when when opera singers sing, mm. one can, especially the soprano, the tenor, you could hear the words once in a while, but the um, soprano, you really can't understand so the did words. So did it make you feel, I want this to be put on again? Oh, of course. And is there a chance that's going to happen? Absolutely, there's a chance. Because this was sort of like a screening, you know, a screening yeah, yeah. of it where the composer got to hear what it sounds like. I got to hear what it sounds like. Would you make any changes to your... Not to the words, no. but the staging, mm -hmm. yes. Because originally I could, I could foresee... Now, here's... Because it's a creation myth, Probably the ideal form it would be in would be an animation movie because it starts out with um, it starts out with two toddlers in the beginning who are this is so first there's the cataclysm the very first scene is straight to Stravinsky and musical and the world the world comes to an end in that one and then the next one are the two beings which are children because my husband brought up the point if I make up a language and the audience doesn't understand it I'll lose the audience mm -hmm. and so he said how about children that start with snatches of language and so I did um, I thought that was a great idea and they start out crawling across the stage shrieking and do we see that toddlers we'll see we don't no. we didn't because no, we just, just saw it yes yeah, so cute yeah i'm seeing it yes. now you see the complication no. of fully staging this is probably that there would need to be three sets of actors and possibly the singers would be off to the side so i'm not sure what the best staging would be mm. um but did jonathan agree with you yeah yeah, yeah, and so the the children grow over the course of the opera. I can tell you the story if you want. I do. Okay, I... it's kind of it's kind of a lovely creation myth where so they as they crawl across the stage, they're shrieking e and o. That's just vowel sounds. And uh, from a psychological point of view, they're starting at with a reptilian brain. So they're starting at the sort of lowest level of human evolution. And when they encounter each other, he holds out his hand, she takes it. She finally, they both feel safe finally. And she starts to cry and her tears make the garden. So the garden grows and they're both now safe. They're both a little older and they start, he starts trying to impress her with uh, ah the man and his peacock feathers exactly and so he creates all the animals and he and these are fanciful animals and it's sort of a, like children's rhyme at that level the language uh, progresses and play is the mammalian brain coming into into the picture so from the reptilian one which is rage fear and seeking we add play and caretaking um, and because I, a lot of my writing of, about clinical intuition really likens the process to animal uh, motivational and emotional uh, circuitry. And so um, he brings these, the, all the animals in and at the point he gets to what originally I was gonna have as the snake, but changed 
um, to the owl. The owl scares her away. She then pulls the blanket of night over her and he feels separation anxiety, which is a third um, mammalian circuitry, uh, grief and separation. He starts to cry. She creates the oceans out of his tears and all of the um, sea creatures. And she sends the whale song to reconnect with him in a dream. And then uh, he wants to see her after they've reconnected, he takes the golden light from the owl's eyes and throw and sews golden threads into the blanket of night. It creates the stars in the galaxies. They look up and have a spiritual awakening, which is now a higher human emotion. And then when it's day, they look at each other and feel love, which is the highest human emotion of all. They do a slow dance. When they separate, there's a baby. The baby makes those original sounds of the mm -hmm. children. And that's the Ouroboros, is the snake that eats its own tail, which is the symbol of creation, self-renewal self and creation in mythology. And that's where the title comes from. Um, and that's the end. Well, very powerful. I want to hear it. Is there a recording of it that we can hear some of it. Not, you know, um, Juilliard is very proprietary and so they don't allow picture taking, they don't allow wow. recording. But do you have some sort of ownership with Jonathan? Yes, you can the, two of, us, the yeah. two of us own it and we can take it elsewhere. And one of the things he said to me at the, very, at the after party was that there's a chance, not that this one, but that um, Cracked Orlando will be playing in Milan, Ooh. which would be really exciting. <gasps> the so, Italians can do opera. The Italians can do opera, and since this is a, an offshoot of Vivaldi, it's mm. a perfect place for, for it. Keep calm and chat on. Have you got plans to write another one? The other thing he said before uh, I left was that he had some ideas about, he wants to do a more mathematical one mm -hmm. based on fractal geometry, based on fractal dimensionality, which is sort of the space between ordinary dimensions and as, a, as cantos, as a, series of, as a series of songs, I believe. And so once again, I had the thought of, I don't know how to do this and then, I slept on it that night and thought, oh, I have an idea for how to do this. So I don't I don't know that we'll do it, but I suspect he'll come back so at it, some point. It sounds like there's two sides to you. There's the, the, the scientific, which, I mean, it was a mm -hmm. doctor of mm -hmm. clinical psychology. Right. And, and then there's the creative. Exactly. But I know that, and I've got this piece of paper in front of me, that, that you that you pride yourself in your being sensitive to creative forces in your in your practice. Exactly. And this and the form of science that I do is is very creative. So fractal geometry itself is an art form. It's the art form that animators use to to make fantastical animations that are very lifelike on on the computer. You you talked about myth. Mm -hmm. Um and I in some um areas of therapy therapists and i suspect you're one of them does draw on mythology the the, the, the archetypes uh-huh so do you do that in your practice i i would say yes the the brain is wired for story and i mm. I, I put it that way because i just read a book 
that's called Wired for Story, we, um, which, which at the collective level is myth. Um, you could say that our own stories we tell ourselves about who we are identity-wise are like our personal myths. Rather than think of them as archetypes in the very strict Jungian sense, sense of the word, I, I tend to think of them as self-organized evolutionary symbols, but I, I do draw on, on that in therapy and I draw on that in my writing as well. I, I just got invited, I'm working on um, three books right now simultaneously, but one is... Um, you haven't got time to cook. <laughs> I, uh, I live on fractal time. I have infinite, <laughs> infinite depth to my to my time. Actually, I have a lot of time to do anything. Um, it's sort of a magical way of looking at time. But one of the books is called Mythic Cognition Today, and so it marries ancient mythology with contemporary science because I think contemporary science is actually um, our culture's myth. Do you think that, um, not wanting you to betray any confidences from your clients, patients, you call them patients? I do. So you accept there's something wrong with them that needs fixing? <laughs> I'm not sure I would put it that way um, because I'm a very, I'm very positive oriented I don't like to I don't like to label and diagnose. but you, you said earlier that you were very intuitive so it, when someone walks in and sits mm-hmm. down do you think do you, do you start forming an idea already or not do you wait to hear their story I absolutely start forming an impression I don't want to say ideal idea because that's very thought driven mm. and intuition is emotion driven more emotion is really at the sort of cornerstone of our beings and of everything. So um, the classic analytic, you know, you analyze in a reductive way is not how I think about it at all. But yeah, from the second I, from the second of contact on the telephone, really, something starts to happen, but it starts unconsciously. So that comes back to that, you know, that archetypal level where our unconscious sides are sort of body to body which is where the unconscious is actually housed do you um can you generalize and say the sort of problems that people come with because i have being a british person mm-hmm. um i i used to think that therapy was for the rich and spoiled hand holding mm. for the rich and spoiled mm. yeah. and i have i am aware i know people and i know of people who literally are in um, therapy, not what's the what's the one above that's not therapy, but something even analysis, deeper, analysis. psychoanalysis, yeah. literally four or five times a week for, right. for years. And to me, I just want to roll my eyes. Yeah, that's class. Oh, my dad bought me a blue bike, and I wanted a red bike. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I wouldn't be very good at this job, by the way. Um, but do you? Can you generalize and say the sort of? So I'm hoping listeners might benefit from your wisdom. Are there certain things that come up a lot with people? Well, sure. I mean, everybody's issues are to some degree universal, mm-hmm. but I want to. I want to say I don't. I don't handhold when people come to see me. They really want to change, and I'm not satisfied unless there's really deep transformation going on. So that doesn't 
always mean that it's a negative experience because a lot of the transformation, once people get past the survival level in themselves, people wind up more create, creative. I mean, that's really how I think of the fruits of, of the self is it's inherently creative, not in the traditional way of artistic creativity or scientific discovery, but in how we have a conversation or how we cook a meal or how we drive to work, that sort of thing, just a much more open place to, to novelty. So My limited experience of therapy and having spoken with friends who've shared their experiences is that sometimes one goes into therapy and you end up pursuing something that you didn't realize that you would come sure. So one needs to come in with an open mind. It's exactly. about personal growth. Exactly. And if you come in thinking you know how you're supposed to change, then you don't need another person. You already know it, right? Mm -hmm. So the ability to really let another human in and have what happens emerge from the from uniquely from the two people requires a kind of openness. Um, and so it's not just Because it can be painful to go deep and bring... It can be painful. But, but it is cathartic, you say. Well, what brings most people in these days is trauma. And... A one-off event or going back to childhood. Usually, most people's trauma starts, starts very, very early in life, pre-verbally. Um, relational. Really? Oh yeah. Pre-verbally. Pre-verbally is where what sets what sets the stage. I also um, I also teach uh, interpersonal neurobiology, which is how the earliest relationships and really at really at any stage of life how relationships form help form our brains and minds but, and bodies. But some and people such. you can have cases where people have the same. Um, background in utero, the same abusive father, perhaps, or whatever, and yet some people sail through it, right? And some people are just and it's not up. the same, nothing is the same, nothing is the same, even the same parents, children have very oh, different experience of, of. So, what their... are good examples but that you could generalize of something that comes up? What's a good example? Well, um, the earliest trauma is relational trauma. And it sets the stage for later trauma. So people who are more resilient when things come up later in life, the first and you're born, you're either born resilient or you're not. No, no, um, you're born. We're, we're born with different genetic makeups, but ha what happens in the in the first three years determines what what gets expressed genetically or not. As well as as really? we go, yeah. three years. Crazy. The first three years are the that's the emotional foundation for later cognitive growth, which is why that's really the most important time in a in a person's life for establishing whether they're going to be resilient later on and what the um, sort of emotional style or attachment style is, whether we're secure we're secure uh, with one another and ourselves so that we can both be autonomous and connected or whether we push people away and just do our own thing or whether we're super dependent on others but there is then you can turn around and blame your parents uh, you know how yeah, do you uh, that's the problem so do you agree with what that other great poet said philip larkin they fuck you up your parents do 
Well, I don't. I for I don't like the concept of blame um, because that is yeah. People have got to take responsibility. That's right. And so we all have to deal with our lot in life. And most of the time, when our parents miss are misattuned to us, they're not doing it on purpose. It's because mm -hmm. they were traumatized. And from an epigenetic point of view, trauma tends to travel from each one generation to the next. Incest does that as well. Addiction does that. Depression does that. So a depressed parent will um, likely uh, raise a depressed child because their face is their face is flat. And so when the baby looks at a, a, a flat face. Um, and not a parent that lights up at them, then they can't light up at themselves. And that's oh not on God, it's a miracle that anyone's <laughs> I see family photos there. Do yeah. you have children? Yes, those are my two children right there. Okay, I'm glad I'm gonna be judgmental here and forgive uh, me a little bit. Okay. Because I like my therapist to have had kids. And I know that the argument is um, you know, well you just be you don't have to have cancer to be a cancer doctor. I do, unless you've had children, yes. I don't think you can, when I say you, I mean yes. you, yes. therapist, right. can really understand the complexities. I agree. Oh, good. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I mean, I think... Have you learned, has your, your, your knowledge helped you in your parenting? Oh, absolutely. Well, no, I'd go the other way. My, I, it goes both ways. It goes, it goes both ways, yes. A lot of therapists have really messed up children, and that's the stereotype. <laughs> Sorry, I'm going to laugh. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, that's the stereotype is... is uh, and that's true? A lot of them have? Yeah. Has, yeah. They right. do. They do. Um, you know, the, the old adage, those who can't do teach, that mm -hmm. kind of thing. Yeah. So those who... So there's a category of therapists, those who can't heal themselves try to heal others. Um, and, those... and but they they could just because someone has is a bit messed up themselves doesn't mean they couldn't help others. You think that? Or... I know. I, yes, I agree with you that that there are um, many therapists who um, have trouble helping themselves, but who can be very helpful to um, to other people. If Absolutely. someone was looking for a therapist, do you think that it's okay to have a, like an interview process? To, you have to, to yes it's like dating fit. yeah it's like dating it's a chem it's 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 pure chemistry so it's very important to uh to meet to have an initial session to meet to see how you feel is that have you ever thought have you ever made the decision now i can't work with you rarely i've been doing this for hmm. 40 years and i i personally really like challenging cases so people that have uh, lots of trauma or character disorders are interesting to me, but um, it sort of depends on what the personality of the therapist is, I think, how they feel. Like, I don't want to just work with rich, famous, or uh, well put together people that, you know, want a hand holding. Mm -hmm. I like to work with people who really have had distress and have been stuck and want to want to get to some new place because helping them transform in that way is the most satisfying thing that I can imagine. It's really Are you magical. allowed to prescribe antidepressants and would you? Do I, you think there's a place for them? I try to get people off of medication primarily. That's I, I do mind-body work. I also have this very physical side, which we haven't talked about, but 
I've been doing yoga for more than 40 years. Um, I've been called a pretzel in my former life. I dance almost every day and uh, was a rock climber, etc. And I have a sort of deep body sense of, and so I like to sort of work with that dimension to um, heal mind and body and get people off of medication rather than on and use grounding in the body as instead of medication. I, which isn't to say that occasionally people do need to Just have, to break the habit sort of thing. Basically. Either break the habit or... Um, the habit of misery, I mean. <laughs> yeah, sometimes. Yeah, I realize all things are different. Right. Now, while I have you, have you noticed patients coming to you with great stress at the election of uh, how the last election went? Yes, I have. Probably of all the events that have happened in the world, this election has rattled people more than than any other. I find, I, I, let's talk about me for a moment. Okay. I was surprised, and I'm not, I, I'm not a citizen, I'm a permanent resident green card holder, so I didn't get to vote, but I tried to be involved, and I and I'm not someone who gets upset easily, but I was—I think traumatized isn't too strong a word to say how I felt. Yes, I felt bereaved. Yes, desperate is a bit strong, but I was desolate. Absolutely, and you found that with people. Absolutely, people are high, have been highly traumatized, and speaking about the election more than any other political event. That what I've advice seen, have you given to people? I don't—I don't give advice. That's not. That's not ah, therapy, okay. but I cop out. <laughs> no, I mean I, I. One way that I have looked at this election is that it's the shadow. It's the shadow collectively coming out. So we went from a very very idealistic um, period of having the first African American president and um, and the sort of hopes to the end of racism to then the shadow coming out and uh, the end of truth and, you know, truth as we know it. And, but is everything um, going to be okay, Doctor? Well, things tend to pendulum. So, yeah, hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm an optimist. Um, I, I do think that the way that, that young people are galvanizing and women are galvanizing, women are entering politics in droves in a way we haven't seen before. So I'm hopeful that um, the, the sort of dark forces that have taken over will um, subside in another wave at but some point. But we have point. to get involved and not just... Everyone has to get involved, yeah. absolutely, yeah. Um, are there any tips that you could give us all for free? Bearing in mind therapy is not cheap. I mean, it isn't. Uh, no, um, it isn't. So, but first of all, I'm going to come back to my question, but okay. I mean, ha a one session with a therapist, if one has an issue, isn't going to do it, is it? No. Is it got to be six? Is it... <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm oh, just. Oh, you! I'm gonna make you. You'll you'll get very upset at me when you hear that that I tend to do long term work mm. with people. So that would range anywhere from a couple of years Ooh, to okay. uh, eighteen years in cases of say incest or severe physical abuse. Yeah, your dad was terrible. Forgive him. Move on. Let it go. Well, 
in just acknowledging that there was an issue. Of course. And when people, I would say of the two cases that I have that have gone on that long, both, both of which have involved incest, in the one case, um, the person is so transformed that she could leave easily. She could leave. Um, I mean, she went from stabbing her husband <laughs> to now it's hard for her to even use a swear word uh, that she has that much control over her own violent um, impulses. But is she still with the husband? Yeah. And wow. she has children and she and uh, her children are in great shape. So, wow. And I didn't mean to belittle someone's suffering. I mean, that's a big one, isn't it? Right. No, it's, uh, the, this is quite an amazing transformation from uh, the throes of poverty, incest, and physical abuse to really extremely high level of functioning to the point of, of having changed California law, which I don't want to no, go course. further no, no. with that. Wow, but okay, that's big. It's big. Uh, but what, what how, a couple of tips to get us to optimum. Wait, wait, I oh, want to finish yeah. that thought okay. because what I, I didn't wanted want to, to say. betray any confidence. In, in one case, um, the person is still needing to come because things are happening where... Um, where the work isn't done, the work of transformation isn't done, and leaving an abusive relationship um, is very difficult, and uh, and so that needs that needs um, continued work. But in the other case, she could leave, but having the company and the witness and the feeling that somebody understands you so deeply. It's a pleasure. So she's not staying because of misery and a sense of... But isn't that what a good friend does, is a sounding board and a supporter? It can, it, that, yeah, but... So you ha you're not a person who has really used therapy in your life, so you don't know the depth of understanding. Actually, I have, on a couple of occasions, without going into too much detail, uh -huh. and, but I'm, and I came from a place of eye-rolling at it and it worked and it was a, t a time of crisis not anything like that right. but I find it extremely helpful but it's like give me the tools this is what happened give me the tools to deal with it right thank you very much and then you're off yes yes and I found that and, and it is it, it you kind of have an impartial referee if you like sure and, and, and that works and I did find and I would never belittle the power of it but yeah, I do kind of yeah. eye-roll at at the long-term thing. Well, there's a difference between crisis resolution, which is what you did, which can happen uh, six to eight weeks is mm. crisis re resolution, yeah. and then you're off, and you're not forming um, a real attachment to the therapist versus really trying to work on uh, people's insecure attachments mm. or disorganized attachments, where the capacity, the, real, the true capacity for... Um, deep and intimate relationships either with the self or other is it's just a whole other level of core transformation so so what do you recommend obviously movement works so for good not 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 optimum but just for good mental and physical health what, well the body is always at the is, is at the mm -hmm. core so uh eating well sleeping enough hours mm -hmm. <laughs> that's a huge one Sleep disorders really? are, oh yeah, 
people people think they're getting away with sleeping less, but like Reagan, who um, boasted that he only slept, I forget how many hours, mm. three or five hours a day. Margaret Thatcher as well. And then wound up with dementia. So we need sleep to, to sort of clear the brain out, to clear toxins out of the brain as well as to consolidate learning and memory. So a um, movement is crucial is movement, where there's emotion, movement. motion. Absolutely. Yeah. Exercise is absolutely critical. So the body comes first and then um, being calm is the other thing. So Do you meditate? I consider yoga to be a moving mm. meditation and I also consider dance uh, to be a moving meditation but a, a joy factory as well. And I practice no thinking, non-thinking and I go through the day, I've gotten really good at not thinking and so I almost think of living as a moving meditation at this point where thinking comes up in in context like what we're doing we're talking mm. and i'm thinking as inspired by you but i try um i try not to think very much during the day when i don't have to well, it sounds to me like you've cracked the art of living you've got a happy marriage to the i do happy marriage my that kids one. are in fabulous shape and you you're you're living your the the the, your dream life. I am living my dream life. I, I'm scared well, I'm very to say that. Today. I'm scared to say that. I'm, and because the the amount of creativity, I feel really blessed to be able to to do, to just sort of jockey back and forth between drawing, writing, um, doing therapy, dancing, doing yoga, etc. I'm really. I so, what are you going to be doing when I leave you? Now, what's your next on your agenda? I'm going to go dance. I'm going to jazz dance. Wow. Yeah. You take a class. Yeah, I go, I, I'll go to Venice to the Electric Lodge where I will jazz dance. Well, this, I, this has been an absolute delight. I, I think you tick all the boxes. I'm very happy for you. And you are going to be writing a, another opera. We'll see. We'll see. I, I'm waiting to see if that actually comes comes about and germinating in the meantime. I'm hoping so. And people can find out more about you on your website, which is markstarlow.com. That's correct. M-A-R-K-S-T-A-R-L-O-W. You're amazing. I mean, you really are. Oh, thank you, Claire. Thank I you. Am, I'm so grateful for thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This has been an absolute delight and joy. Thank you. Good luck to you and all that you do. I don't think you need it, though. You're all sorted. Keep calm and chat on. On the next chat with Claire Fordham, I'll be chatting with British broadcaster Russ Kane. A regular visitor to LA, Russ talks about Capital Radio, loss, and what he loves and loathes about LA. Until next time, thanks for listening. Keep calm and chat on. We simply must applaud them. The Chat Podcast with Claire Borden. Keep calm and chat on. The Chat with Claire Fordham is an M Squared production.